you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue our study, we'll actually be focusing on chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But I'll begin reading in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So the author begins chapter 4 with this word. He says, therefore, or in light of what has been said. So we spent 11 weeks on Hebrews 3.13 and trying to answer the question how we are to exhort one another. And it was kind of in and around all of these verses. So what has been the main thrust of the preceding verses? What should we hold in our minds as we move to this next section? The word therefore indicates that he is building on what he has already said. So if I were to summarize verses 15 through 19 at the end of chapter 3, I would say it this way. Those who perished in the wilderness were the very same people who saw God's mighty works in bringing them out of Egypt. They had many powerful spiritual experiences, but they failed to enter God's rest. The author doesn't really move on. If you are really tired of the sermons over exhorting one another and ensuring that this community of faith that you're a part of endures to the end, then you will be disappointed this morning. He continues the same argument. This is his pastoral concern for his hearers. He wants them to endure. It's the same warning. It's the same exhortation. It's reworded and even intensified a bit. And the whole reason I saw the need to go through that study that we just completed on 3.13 is that we will be coming up on some very difficult uh, passages here shortly. In chapter 4 and 6 and 10, Hebrews is a very hard book. And I just want to show you 
going to show my card, spill the beans, as it were, and show you one of the texts, the Everest that we have to summit here coming up in a few chapters. And why we have to listen carefully to what the author is saying here and bring it all with us so that when we get to that passage, we'll know how to understand it and deal with it. It's Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." That's a hard text, and it might be the hardest text in the entire Bible to preach. And it's coming, and we can't understand it rightly, we can't appropriate it rightly in our hearts unless we bring with us everything that the author has already said. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So a lot of preachers or teachers might avoid that text or skip over it quickly or brush it aside saying it doesn't really mean what it's really clearly saying because it makes us feel uneasy. And you can't grow churches that way. Or you usually don't. And I'll say it again and again and again and again every time I mention this. Jesus loses none of those the Father has given Him. The exact number and the exact names of those that the Father has given the Son, will be raised up on the last day. You can read John 6 and see that. So we have to carry forward in the case of the Israelites who failed to enter God's rest, who rebelled and refused to enter, who fell in the wilderness. We have to carry with us that grave example of the catastrophic consequences of unbelief. And carry forward the strong imperative that we spent so long investigating to exhort one another. Because that is the cure. That is the antidote. That is what prevents a root of unbelief from taking hold in our hearts and spreading. So he says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So what is he saying here? If you're trying to figure out what's going on in this text, don't understand it as on the one hand and on the other hand. While on the one hand, the promise of entering his rest still stands, on the other hand, let us fear. That's not how he's saying this. The word while indicates something like since the promise of entering his rest still stands, or while the way is open, or while we still have time. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. While this is the case. While the promise is out there. While the promise has been extended. 
And when we get to understand this promise and and how he uses this to fill in the blanks for us for the, the second thing he tells us here, let us fear. There's four things I want you to see, and we'll get to these in a minute. First is the one who promises. Two is the openness of the promise. Three is the glorious content of the promise. And four is the threat to the promise. But before we get that to that, I want to clearly and urgently plead with you on behalf of the Lord himself that you do not harden your hearts and fail to reach this promise. Friends, the promise of entering his rest still stands. There's still time. The offer of salvation is here. Be reconciled to God. Let today be the day of salvation. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as we read this morning. The gospel has come. Believe in the Lord Jesus. The promise of entering his rest still stands to you. What am I asking you to do today? As Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 18, 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O Israel? Why would you die in your sins? Why would you reject the offer of salvation? Your sins have not satisfied you. They have not brought you hope. They have not brought you joy. And the offer of salvation is there. Why will you die? Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what you need to do today. Repent from sin, turn away and forsake your sin. Believe in, trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your righteousness. So he says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, while there's still time, while the way is open, while the door is not yet shut, Let us fear. Literally, let us begin to fear. Does he really mean fear? Many people stumble on this point. And there may be someone here in this room who on hearing this command, and it is a command, let us begin to fear, will balk at this or reject it. Or feel uneasy. God commands me to fear. Doesn't sound like a happy message. That's not the God I believe in. Many try to soften the language of the scriptures and other texts. In this text, when it talks about the fear that we owe to the Lord and say it really means something like have awe and reverence for or have respect And while it is true that we ought to have awe and reverence towards God, while we should respect the Lord, we also must fear. This verse doesn't make any sense if you substitute the word fear with reverence. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us begin to give reverence. Doesn't work. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us begin to have awe. Doesn't make any sense. 
Fear is the only word that works here. And the problem with your fear is not that you have fear. It's that you fear the wrong things and you fear far too little. We fear people. We fear the loss of property or possessions or prosperity or popularity. We fear uncertainty. We fear illness. We fear death. People are big, the devil is big, and God is very small in our hearts, and we don't fear him. From the words of Jesus, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. Everyone in this room, you owe God your utmost allegiance and fear this morning. And if that rubs your view of God the wrong way, you've had the wrong view of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So are you afraid? Not nearly enough. So we need to define fear biblically. There are so many passages we could go to, but in order to keep the flavor of this text and really keep it contained in what the author is saying and not go to other places, uh, let's ask the question of the author himself. So, author of Hebrews, why should we fear and what do you mean by fear? There are the four things I said earlier. This is the reason he gives us for fearing. We should fear because of the one who is making this promise. Second, we should fear because of the openness of this promise. Three, we should fear because of the glorious content of this promise. And four, we should fear because of the threat to this promise. So first, we must fear because of the one who is making the promise. The world loves guarantees. You can't hear an ad or a a business trying to make its appeal to you to trust them with your businesses without them offering some kind of guarantee. Satisfaction guaranteed. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Send it back to us. You'll lose no money or you'll keep it for free if you're not satisfied. But what if that company goes out of business? What if that city goes bankrupt and they can't pay interest on the bonds that you bought? What if that bank goes under and can't pay the interest or return the deposits you made? Even the federal government, FDIC insurance, right? Your deposit's guaranteed. What about when the U.S. government's no more? The strength of a promise is only as strong as the one making the promise. So I said to my father-in-law, I promise I will take care of your daughter. And to my kids, I promise I'll take care of you. But the strength of those promises is only akin to my strength. And that's why we ask for God's strength in the keeping of these promises. So when God makes a promise and swears by his own name, it carries a degree of finality and surety that is hard for us to imagine. He has promised to bring his people into his rest. So this should inform us how we ought to feel when our heart 
draws us to question God's commitment to his promise towards us and why unbelief is so devastating in the end. God is the one making the promise. God is the one opening this offer of entering his rest. The Almighty, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe, the Lord of the armies of heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the giver of life, the judge of the living and the dead, the Holy One, the Ancient of Days, the I Am, Lord of heaven, earth, and hell, the beginning and the end, the only God, blessed forever. That is the one making this promise. This is why, brothers and sisters, that we should fear. We are dealing with the very one who gives life and breath and everything to everyone. He is the promise maker, and his word will not fail. The second reason we must fear, because of the openness of the promise. He says, while the promise still stands, or while there is still time, while the way is open, while the door is not shut, it might seem odd that the author would use this as a reason for us to fear. But it is because of the great cost to God himself in making this offer of entrance into his rest that we ought to fear. The offer to the Israelites in the wilderness came at the end of the most spectacular outward example of the power of God. Think about the story of the Exodus. The ten plagues bringing the most powerful nation in the world at the time to utter ruin. The parting of the Red Sea, destroying the armies of Egypt in the water. Hearing the very voice of God on Mount Sinai, seeing his terrifying glory in the lightning and the thunder, and being in his presence, and then him graciously giving them the word of his law. He opened the earth to consume the insurrection. He defeated kings and brought other nations to ruin. He turned the mouths of opponents from cursing to blessing. He opened a rock to provide water, sending quail from the sky, providing bread from heaven, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and then the ark of the covenant and the tabernacle itself where the visible presence of God's glory rested among the people and yet unbelief. No, we won't go in. We're not going to enter your rest. When the crucial point of entering God's rest came to them, even after all that God had done to make that possible, they rejected his promise. When the spies returned and ten of the twelve gave a bad report, then the people stubbornly persisted in unbelief. The severity of God's response, wherein everyone but Joshua and Caleb, who was over the age of twenty, died in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land, fell in the desert, is precisely because of all the effort it took on God's part to bring them to that point. 
If that severe response is how God responded, being spurned by the hardness of heart of the people in unbelief, what of us? Who have been told the mighty works of God in the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Ponder the miracle of the incarnation, the bringing together of human history to the fullness of crime, time for Christ to be born, the working of miracles, signs, and wonders, the, filling of, the fulfilling of hundreds and hundreds of prophecies given over centuries and centuries, the ghastly horror of the death of the Son of God on a Roman cross, this full and perfect display of God's love and holiness. Then the resounding display of His love and glory, raising Jesus from the dead, pronouncing His return through angels and the apostles, accompanied by signs and wonders, and the testimony being watered century after century by the blood of the martyrs. And giving us the full written testimony of his word, which is sufficient for all of life. How much greater will his wrath and judgment be for those who see all of that and yet persist in unbelief? That is why you ought to fear. The only being in all the universe who owes no person anything except judgment, sacrificed the one worth more than everything to bring you to himself and love you forever and make you the heir of everything with him. To see all of that and to see all the work God did to make that possible and to persist in unbelief, that is why, brothers and sisters, we ought to fear. The gravity and weight of glory ought to define your life. That glorious invitation to enter God's rest. All that he did to make that invitation into his rest possible. Not your career, not your hobby, not your family even, not your retirement plans, not your likes or dislikes. Nothing but that God has done the impossible and opened the way for you to enter his rest. That defines your life. His promise stands. Glory be to God. So let us fear. Third, we should fear because of the glory of the content of the promise. Rest. It's a glorious word. And I made a joke a few weeks ago that for those with kids, it's a word that might seem foreign or alien, right? You don't know what rest is. What is that? Has that ever happened? Many of us have heard the word gospel or good news, but many of you might not have heard it phrased this way, entering God's rest. This is why I don't like the phrase rest in peace, because it implies that there is a way to rest without peace. There are those who rest in peace and those who maybe have some sort of turmoil. This is a very pagan idea of death. There is no rest at all for those who do not enter God's rest. Only judgment and condemnation. But God's rest, His perfect 
rest is so wonderful, something to be longed for so deeply that the idea of missing it, the idea of anyone among us missing it, failing to reach it, should cause us to have a holy fear for ourselves and those around us. One of the reasons this image or idea of rest should be so appealing to you is because I know that each of us, when we're quiet and we listen to what's really going on in our heart, we feel and sense the brokenness and weariness of the world. And entertainment can make that feeling go away for a time. Good food and good fellowship can make that feeling go away for a time. But each of us, We'll say with the author of Ecclesiastes, at some point, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's great weariness in the world and it is full of it. I love Psalm 73. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because they both acknowledge and address this weariness and brokenness and groaning of the world. The Christian life is not lollipops and skipping. The world is broken, cursed, subjected to futility. It's not as it should be, brothers and sisters. And especially Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We talked this morning in our Sunday school hour about glorification. If that didn't cause in you a sense of longing that you long to put off this broken self and for the world to be remade in new life, then I don't know if you understand what's really being offered to you in this promise of rest. The promise of entering God's rest should cause us to fear because we feel so keenly this brokenness and weariness and we want it to stop. What we long for is rest. I wrote this a few years ago. I hope it blesses you. Rest is a most reassuring word to describe the reward in this life and what future hope is for those who believe. The futility under which we have been subjected due to our sinful heritage has permeated our lives with weariness. All things are full of weariness, even in our moments of highest joy. When we turn and face the truth of the innermost places of our hearts, we find that we are so very tired depleted, and the light of life is ever fading. So, onto this stage of our inadequacies, our smallness, coupled with the increase of our weariness, the Lord brings this word to us, rest. Yes, all the superlatives are true. We will be with Him forever, eternally. An ever-increasing display of glory. All of those superlatives are true. But we have the assurance that the way our whole being receives this blessing will be perfect rest. For today, and while we wait, 
the mere anticipation of the fullness of that rest makes us early participants in it here and now. For those who believe, enter that rest. Jesus says, come to me, those of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's his promise to you. And the fear of missing out on that rest should make you do something. It makes you severe about life and seeing your brothers and sisters around you in the context of this command to exhort one another so that unbelief doesn't take root and cause you to fall away because you don't want yourself or your brothers and sisters to miss out on that rest. Finally, we should fear because of what threatens the promise. Having said all that we've said about the promise of entering God's rest, what possibly could threaten the fulfillment of this promise? Unbelief. That is the one sin that God will not and does not want to forgive. Unbelief. If you persist in unbelief, you will be cut off from his presence and glory forever. That ought to make you fear. A holy fear, reverent towards the Lord, knowing that He is holy and pure and what He requires is belief. We've already looked at Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. We read it at the beginning. We have a whole bundle of terms that clarify for us what cuts a person off from this promise. Rebellion. Sin disobedience, and finally, unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. All of these are essentially referring to the same thing in general, but the root of it all is unbelief. I used to think that pride was the root of all sin. It's a very old doctrine that pride results in all sin. Actually, I think now it's more biblical to say that unbelief is the root of all sin. Because how can you be proud? How can you well up in pride if you're believing the truth about God and yourself? Adam and Eve's first sin was to disbelieve that God was good. And we'll move on to the next phrase and fill in more of this threat to the promise. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There are many sad words in the English language, but the saddest of all is probably this, apostasy. Many of you have probably never even heard that word. But we need to know and carry that word with with us because it is the real danger that the author is warning his hearers against. It is the real danger for them. It was the real danger for the children of Israel. And it is the real danger for us today. And it's not like I'm telling you about some rare disease like tetanus. According to the CDC, only 30 people a year are diagnosed with tetanus. And it can kill you. It's a severe disease. It's very rare. And you've got to be aware of it. You've got to do what you can do to prevent it. 
It's not like that. It's not a rare, deadly disease, apostasy. It's very real. It's happening all around you, and it is the most deadly disease of all. What does it mean? We'll go to the words of Jesus here. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able To define this word as the Bible defines it, we need to remember that these are real threats to us. Falling away is a real threat. Deceiving yourself is a real threat. Drifting away from the gospel is a real threat. Making shipwreck of your faith is a real threat. Failing to reach God's rest is a real threat. And he says it this way, lest any of you You could also phrase it this way, lest anyone among you should have failed to reach it, have seemed to fail to reach it. The language indicates that this concern and fear ought to not just be for ourselves, but for everyone around us. Partly because this disease of apostasy and unbelief is contagious. The concern, the fear, and the urgency, the severity of life, the wartime mentality is mandated here because of the responsibility laid on each of you for one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The fear of failing to reach this rest, failing to enter the kingdom of God, leads to action. Strive to enter the narrow gate. Make your calling and election sure. Exhort one another. Rescue the perishing from the fire. Present everyone mature in Christ. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This word is very important because... We don't have a Christian, genuine Christian blacklight. Does that make sense? You can't hold a person under a survey or a machine and know for sure 100% whether or not they are bound for glory or condemnation. However, we are supposed to know and judge people by their fruits. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You will know them by their fruits. So this word seem actually adds a level of intensity to what kind of interaction you should have towards the people in your life who claim to be Christians. If they even seem to be falling away or seem to be drifting, this holy fear should drive you to do something about it, to exhort them, to confront them, 
to appeal to them on God's behalf to be reconciled to God and rescue them from the fire. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The content of the good news and the trajectory of the good news were different. But it is the same mandated response. It's not like that when Caleb and Joshua returned from spying out the land along with the ten spies who brought the bad report that they were preaching faith in Jesus in that moment. But they did proclaim good news. Just like we're hearing good news today, the way of salvation is open. The invitation to enter God's rest has been made open to you. There's still time. The offer of entering God's promised land was open to them. And Caleb and Joshua proclaimed, we can take the land. But the other ten spies said, well, there are giants in the land. And they'll consume us. We can't take the land. God can't fill his promise. So that's the response of faith and the response of unbelief. You see his offer of entering his rest as beautiful and as glorious as it is, as we talked about a few weeks ago with the kingdom, to look at that and say it's too good to be true. Or it's not worth denying myself, taking up my cross and following him. God's not true. I don't believe that it's worth it. So I'll just live a halfway Christian life or life with the side of Jesus so that I can stay within my culture of Christianity and maybe if it turns out to be true, I'll be okay. That's not belief. That's unbelief. So Joshua and Caleb say, yes, we can take the land. It's a good land. God is true. He is strong. He will fight for us. The ten spies say, no, there are giants. We'll be consumed. God can't deliver. So a big takeaway here, just as a parenthesis for application, who are you listening to? The word of God, the word of promise, is often the minority and the unpopular opinion. Just think about it. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones of the people who firmly believed God, that God could give them the land. The ten spies convinced everyone else to fall off the razor's edge of obedience and faith into the abyss of unbelief and the catastrophe that took place afterwards. Who are you listening to? What voices do you allow in your home and in your heart and in your ears? Who in your life is the Joshua and the Caleb? And who in your life are the ten spies? Some relationships need to end today because of this. Some associations and some consumption of media needs to end today because of this. Who are you listening to? What would it or what does it look like to disbelieve God in our day? Here's the answer. Anything that allows sin to take root in your heart. The first evidence of unbelief in your heart taking root is that you begin to allow sin to fester and have a place of safety in your life. 
And I'm not talking about moralism. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But if repentance is not valued, if we are not individually and together making war against sin in our lives, then it does not matter who we've listened to. We are on the side of the ten spies who disbelieved God. And this is my heart towards you as a pastor. Not the buildings, not the events, not the programs, not the growth in numbers. Faithfulness. I will have to answer to God for every single one of you who is a member of this church. And that's terrifying. But this is why we're working towards a new church covenant. One that is bolstered by these commitments to one another. It's available for you on the table exiting this room. It's that important. This is what we're committing ourselves to. Because the gospel has come. What are you doing about it? The offer of entering his rest still stands. The way is open. The door is not yet shut. What are you doing about it? In a few minutes, we'll conclude and we'll sing a song and we'll take up the offering and we'll be done. Then you'll begin to talk with your friends. I'll begin to talk with you and we'll talk about our week and how things have gone and what we're planning to do and what we hope to do. And our busy lives of weariness will take over. And that's fine as far as it goes. But does this message change anything for you? Do you see the severity of our situation with the promise of entering God's rest? We are on the precipice We're almost home. And the promise of entering his rest still stands. I want you to enter his rest. And I want to enter his rest. I want our response to to the word to be the right kind of response. One of holy fear and commitment to this manner of exhorting one another. So that there will not be anyone among us who fails to reach this rest. This is the reason behind everything I'm trying to do and to lead us in as a church. This is why we give time at the end to pray and respond. Why we sing and I'm up here. That's a time for you. If you need prayer and to talk to someone and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, that's available to you. That's the reason we have a midweek prayer meeting. We can't do this without the Lord's help. So we seek his help. We pray for his help. This is why we have many different ways you can serve. This is why, as I said, we're working on the new church covenant. And this is why I try so hard to prevent the intrusion of distractions into the ministry here. And this also serves as a litmus test to the genuineness that goes on at other churches, even churches around the world in our denomination. This severity, this kind of life, this kind of gospel is why you can create a transcendent experience in church with lights and fog and sound and have music with, with shallow theology that makes people feel in touch with their emotions and you can preach a sermon that makes people feel happy and loved and safe all in a really nice facility where no one feels crowded or inconvenienced with events that cater to the need and demand for entertainment and you can bring in thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I'm not trying to compete with that. I never will, and I can't. 
Worst of all, it is spiritual malpractice to do all that work to insulate people's conscience while you give them a sense of meaning, purpose, and belonging, and their hearts are far from God. And they are not on the way to God's rest. They are on their way to condemnation. And many will say to the Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we sing all these songs? Didn't we attend all these services? Didn't we go on these trips? Depart from me. I never knew you. No, brothers and sisters, what we have is the promise of entering God's rest. That is our main feature. That is what we enthrone in this room every Sunday, the promise of entering God's rest. We have the words of life because God has given them to us. And I will preach them and teach them as compellingly as I possibly can. And I will try to lead out and create things like the weekly prayer meeting and training in evangelism to try and bolster that. But it, the main feature must be this promise and the severity of life and the commitment to this promise that follows along with it. The message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. This is the first time in Hebrews that the author uses the word faith. And it's going to become for him a major theme. There are many ways of looking at the gospel. In the context of this passage, the coming judgment should be the setting in our mind. We don't like to talk about it, but there is an appointed time for man to die. You and I will die. And there is nothing you or I can do about it. All of our accomplishments, all of our healthy living will break down and come to an end at the final breath. And death himself will take the victory over us. But this will not be the end. After death comes the judgment. Every person without exception will be raised to the judgment. And it is not that the good people will go to heaven and the bad people will go to hell. The judgment will show that all of the human race deserves judgment and condemnation. The judgment will show that God is holy and just. And the right response of God's holiness and justice is eternal torment of hell. That is what the judgment will show. But then, we will see one man who is the exception. One man who does not deserve this fate. Jesus, the Messiah. This is why following Jesus and believing in Jesus is so important. In making the whole story about Jesus, the Father has made it so that those who trust in Jesus will gain the rights that Jesus himself has and the rights that he earned through his perfect life. Brothers and sisters, we don't deserve grace and we don't deserve mercy. And our own merits, we don't even deserve the offer of salvation. We for sure don't deserve entrance into the kingdom of God. And when you stand before God and your life condemns you, the law of Moses condemns you and God's righteousness condemns you. 
as the long list of your infractions and disobedience against the law and against God is brought to light. You will not have a lawyer. There will be no jury. And there will be no higher court to which you can appeal your case. And young children, your mom and dad is not going to be able to stand there with you. I won't be able to stand there with you and answer the hard questions for you. It will be you and God. And the issue will be your life and the condemnation you deserve. But even if God himself looks at you sternly, your knees unable to keep you standing after the just case against you has been read and fully explained with the full extent of the righteous demands of the law coming against you in punishment. And even if God were to say to you, you do not deserve to enter my rest, you dare not disagree. You are only to look to the one at his right hand and say with all humility, I do not deserve to enter your rest, but I trusted your son. I set my hope in him. I plead the blood, the death, the resurrection and the reign of Christ. I trusted in him in life and I trust in him now in this moment alone. And then, as he raises up your head with all tenderness, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. Believe in Him. Trust in Him today. Not yourself, not your learning, not your wisdom, not your wokeness, not your modern sensibilities, not in your correct doctrine even, not your spiritual experiences, not even your sense of nearness to Him. Trust in Christ alone. Believe in Him. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Those who endure to the end, trusting in Christ, will enter God's rest. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the promise of entering your rest. Thank you that you invite us to a kind of life that is serious, that's not flippant but one that takes seriously the weariness of this world and you invite us into the end of it in your rest. I pray in this moment if there is someone who has heard the gospel explained clearly for the first time that today would be the day of salvation, that they would find someone, find me, they would not put it off and come to you in repentance, rejecting their sin. I pray that for those of us who know you and believe in Jesus and trust in him alone, that the offer and open way of entering your rest would stun us and that it would drive us to live a severe kind of life that honors you in holy fear. Pray that we would make our lives about your kingdom at all costs. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.